It was late one night in 1986, said Shaw, when her father returned from his daily routine at the Johnson Space Center. There was nothing particularly unusual about his lateness, Shaw elaborated, as her father was occasionally required to work late into the night. On this particular night, however, things were very different. Her father was clearly deeply distressed, and even seemed to be on the verge of lapsing into a full-blown anxiety attack. After Desiree and her mother were finally able to calm him down, Frank Shaw told a wild and extraordinary story. While walking to his car that night, he had seen, to his complete and utter horror, perched on a nearby building, a large man-like figure that was utterly black in color and that seemed to have a large cape draped across its shoulders and back with two huge wing-like appendages sticking out from each side of the cape. Looking more bat-like than bird-like, the wings made a cracking noise as they slowly flapped in the strong, howling wind. The creature, Shaw told his amazed family, had clearly realized it had been seen. Not only that, Shaw gained the very distinct impression that the beast was actually relishing that it had been noticed, and was even seemingly deriving some form of deranged, evil pleasure from the fact that it had struck terror into the heart of Shaw. He could only stand and stare, frozen to the spot in complete abject fear. The sheer horrific unreality of the situation, seeing a large, dark, gargoyle-like entity looming ominously over him from a rooftop at NASA's Johnson Space Center, finally hit home with full force, and Shaw raced for his car, flung open the door, slammed it shut, and then sped off into the darkness. He did not attempt to look back, even once. Not surprisingly, Shaw's family suggested that reporting the encounter to his superiors might not be the wisest move he could make. He agreed, for a short while anyway. After a few weeks, however, the strange event was still gnawing steadily away at Shaw's mind and nerves, and eventually he confided in his immediate superior, who, to Shaw's great surprise and relief, revealed that this was not the first time such a vile entity had been seen late at night roaming around the more shadowy parts of the Johnson Space Center. In other words, Shaw was not going crazy or hallucinating. The beast was real, and Shaw was not the only witness. Ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people, welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the top secret duo of Jay and Rory Wicks. Why did you say my name? I've been declassified. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. In the basement. Yep. How's it going, guys? I was trying to think of something to say in reference to the top secret thing, and my mind went completely blank. Now your thoughts are top secret, even from you. Apparently. 
It's like your thoughts went to thought crime jail and leaving you a hollow husk. Well, that's like every day. Aw. I think that's just, I think I was just living with a perpetual low-level anxiety and depression. Low? Little bit, yeah. Well, this is depressing. (laughs) Anyway, uh, medication. Guys, the book here we're we're here to talk about today is The NASA Conspiracies by Nick Redfern. Uh, This is one of the first times we've strayed uh, full-on into conspiracy land, although there was quite a bit of UFOs in here. So what did you guys think? Um... Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. It was entertaining. Yeah, yeah I, that is the key word I would use to describe this book is highly entertaining. Yeah. And, and I will say this, at least he did a pretty good job of when the conspiracy theories were totally unsupported of not uh, not putting lipstick on a pig, being yeah. pretty open about. No, there's there's nothing supporting this at all. Yep. Yeah, there were a couple of those. Uh, thankfully, usually the ones that he went, yeah, there's nothing supporting this, where to quote Soren Bowie from uh, Cracked After Hours, my arm is not long enough for the jerk-off motion my soul wants to make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I especially when we start getting into uh, like some of the claims of sabotage or the moon landing being faked. That I one, just, I can't. I was so excited about that chapter, and it didn't disappoint me. I can't. I ju- there is literally nothing <laughs> to support this theory, even at all. Like if you if you apply the smallest amount of critical thinking, then therefore none of it holds any water, even a little bit. I used to think the moon landing was faked, and then I stopped being ten years old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it it was actually fascinating in that chapter because um. The same shit that helped 10-year-old Jay understand that we did go, and I need to stress to the listeners, I was literally 10 years old when I thought that this was a possibility. Um, But yeah, the the same stuff that he went through about like, well, the reason you can't see no stars is because... It's hard to take fucking pictures in space. What do you know? <laughs> that was that that was all stuff where it was like, oh, it's so nostalgic revisiting these basic facts of it's like the flag was blowing in the wind. No, it wasn't. It was completely still except for that one time. It was blowing in the wind. You know, because vibrations. It, 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 uh, it's a guy it fluttered, touched it. Yeah, when someone moved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh but I'm sure we're gonna get into that. We have actually a question where we're gonna have a chance to scream about the moon landing. Cool. Uh, so are we ready to get into it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's All right. just dive right in. Lasers did not destroy the Challenger. Part one, little gray dudes and evil space hippies. Yay! That's the first time you've ever cheered for an alien. I'm cheering because these ones are definitely fake. The story of NASA begins on October 4th, 1957, with the launch of the Soviet satellite Sputnik 1. This kicked off the legendary space race, as the United States worked feverishly to prove that they too had the technology and capabilities to not only match the Russian effort, but to exceed them in exploration of the cosmos. Congress demanded action, and with the blessings of President Eisenhower, began the work of establishing the organization which we now know as NASA, an organization which has since sent men and women into space, sent men to walk on the lunar surface, and even sent robotic singing rovers to Mars. However, in that time, it has done more than gather accolades. Dark rumors and shadows stir in the forgotten corners of NASA, suggesting dark plots, secret technologies, and murder. And, as you might expect regarding any organization focused on the mysteries of space, 
Many of these conspiracy theories concern the idea of visitors from other worlds, UFOs, and plots to end human supremacy of Earth. In fact, the idea of little gray men from the stars seems to be deeply entwined with the NASA story, for better or worse, going back to their very founding and the UFO flap that began over the continental United States directly afterwards. Declassified UFO reports from the late 1950s tell tales of saucers landing in farmers' fields, nighttime visits from black-eyed visitors, and so much high strangeness that it was even suggested that the raising of Sputnik 1 to the stars was a signal to the alien others that Earth had entered a new age and was ready to begin its introductions to the cosmic neighborhood. While on an official level, the fledgling NASA was reluctant to attach its name to the saucer craze sweeping the country, behind closed doors they did take notice. NASA's Committee on Long-Range Studies even produced a document, vetted and approved by 200 experts of various disciplines, discussing the direct implications of the discovery of alien life. They also assessed, if such an eventuality were to occur, when and how the public should be made aware of it. Now, it's important to remember that this was the height of the Cold War, and paranoia of the alien outsider was at an all-time high. As such, there was a deep concern that the revelation of actual aliens from another star would cause mass upheaval, chaos, and a total breakdown of global systems. As such, NASA concluded that the decision to reveal E.T. to the public would have to be made with the full awareness of the current social, cultural, and religious makeup of the overall population, and that in truth the decision may be made to not tell the public at all. It's no wonder, then, that many have since concluded that this was the plan all along, and for the last 50-odd years, NASA has meticulously worked to conceal the existence of extraterrestrial visitation from the eyes of the world. Claims which NASA vehemently denies, or more often ignores. But that isn't to say that NASA has always provided a unified front on that account. While the vast majority of NASA administrators and astronauts have been reluctant to speak of the UFO phenomenon in any positive terms, there have been some. For example, Gordon Cooper, one of the Mercury 7 astronauts, outright claimed knowledge of an alien presence in Earth's atmosphere, and even said as much in an open address to the UN. His own sighting occurred before his time in space, when he was serving in the U.S. Air Force in the skies above western Germany. He was flying his F-86 jet on patrol when he reported seeing a massive convoy of anomalous craft lacking wings or a visible propulsion system operating at speeds which were simply not possible with the aeronautical technology available at the time. He reported this to his superiors, who wrote the whole thing off with the weak explanation that he had seen high-flying seed pods from some terrestrial plant life. Cooper's career continued, and in 1957, he was assigned to the fighter section of the Experimental Flight Test Engineering Division in California's Edwards Air Force Base. One morning, he and two others were out on the dry lake bed with film equipment to record the flight of military aircraft in the skies above, a rather routine operation which turned suddenly and dramatically strange with the arrival of a massive saucer. It hovered overhead, landed 150 feet away from them, and then shot back off into the sky without a sound. And even more incredible, the whole thing was captured on film. Following the orders of his superior, Cooper then sent the film to the Pentagon, where, predictably, it never resurfaced. And Cooper wasn't alone. Another Mercury astronaut, Donald Kent Slayton, reported seeing a small white sphere darting around the skies as he flew his jet over the Mississippi River. And during the Gemini missions, astronaut James McDivitt reported seeing an anomalous cylindrical object flying through space. NASA and the powers that be chalked the former sighting up to a weather balloon, and the latter to a sighting of space junk left behind by a previous launch. Though it's worth noting that in both cases the cover-up, if one occurred, came from the Air Force brass, and not NASA directly. 
which was not the case in one notable instance in which an anomalous craft came hurtling to its fiery end in the woods outside the small Pennsylvania town of Kecksburg. Now, this legendary UFO crash is a complicated story, one which we will no doubt cover in a later episode focusing on one of the several books written about the affair. But, in short, a fireball was seen flashing across the skies above Canada, traveling south across the border to its final resting spot in Pennsylvania. Witnesses saw the object slowing on its descent and changing direction before it hit the ground, indicating it was under intelligent control. Soon after, the entire community of Kecksburg was abuzz with stories of crash saucers, alien corpses, and government cover-ups. Journalists and Air Force investigators swarmed the town, while an armed military presence took over the crash site and forbade any from coming close. All to find a 16-year-old who was sitting behind the wheel of that spacecraft going, Oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck! <laughs> Investigator Stan Gordon, who conducted a deep and wide-ranging investigation into the Kecksburg affair, even claimed to have met an unnamed source who had been attached to an Air Force security team at Lockburn Air Force Base in Columbus, Ohio. According to the source, he had been tasked with standing guard over a hangar, inside which was the remains of a crashed saucer recovered from Kecksburg, which was soon after transferred to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, home to the U.S. Air Force's Foreign Technology Division. Another witness further claimed to have seen injured but alive aliens wandering the woods near the crash site. Now, as for NASA, it is known that they were involved in the affair to some degree, but contradictory statements about the craft's origin from NASA personnel with some claiming it was falling space debris and others saying that that was mathematically impossible, threw enough mud in the water to confuse the whole affair to a degree that finding the truth may be all but impossible. Journalist Leslie Keene even went as far as to file suit against NASA, a case which was mired in legal paperwork and the discovery that NASA's records concerning the event were either lost or destroyed. Beyond Kecksburg, some sources even suggest that NASA is somehow involved with the infamous Area 51, where many conspiracies claim secret research into alien craft and biological entities are conducted under the strictest of security. The primary source for this conspiracy theory is a man named John, who claimed to have served with the NYPD from 1948 to 1959 before he was recruited by the FBI and interned by a company that provided security services to NASA facilities. Soon after, he was approached by elements within the intelligence community for possible top-secret contract work in Nevada. Chasing a highly lucrative one-year contract, he agreed and was then subjected to six interviews, two of which were reportedly with high-ranking NASA administrators, and the rest with members of the intelligence community. He passed these tests and, as you might have guessed, soon discovered that this mysterious new job would be at the aforementioned Area 51. He and other contract employees would remain at the base for 27-day rotations, before being returned to Las Vegas for a few days of downtime, during which he and the many other bachelors working at the base would get drunk, gamble, and frequent high-class prostitutes. Like you do. <laughs> when the time came to return to work, he would be flown to the base in a small aircraft with blacked-out windows. Once landed, he'd be made to wear special goggles that blacked out the upper two-thirds of his vision, forcing him to stare only at the ground between his feet. He was then led to a small concrete building containing only a security checkpoint and an elevator that took him two floors down where he passed through several more security checkpoints before reaching his office. On his first day, he was briefed by three men with NASA credentials. His job would be in what they called the History Department, an archive of secret prototype design documents, bio-warfare research, and of course, UFOs. He would be working in the latter category, serving as a custodian and caretaker for a vast collection of files and reports regarding anomalous craft. 
His job would be to familiarize himself with these files and to assist scientific and military personnel in locating and reviewing them for research purposes. The files seemed to cover a period between 1943 and 1969 and painted a picture of a wide-ranging conspiracy by the U.S. scientific and military establishment to investigate UFOs behind the backs of the taxpaying public. Were these the files that were written on the weird orange paper? Some of them were. Okay. Yeah, some of them were. From what he could piece together, it seemed that in 1947, a hidden group was created within the American intelligence community, one which worked closely with NASA on ET-related topics. Previously, each intelligence agency and NASA kept their own individual UFO files. However, in the late 1960s, a radical restructuring was undertaken to bring all UFO files under a single roof, that being Area 51. This, he claims, is why nobody has ever managed to find NASA files on UFOs. They were long ago sent to Area 51 and deleted from any official archives. Among the files, he found reports of alien autopsies, crashed ships, and so much evidence that he often wondered if all of this was a ruse meant to test his loyalty. He found reports from Los Alamos Laboratory about experiments conducted on strange, non-human people, ones who never spoke but screamed like seals while undergoing horrific medical experimentation. In one report, an alien autopsy claimed the lives of an entire medical team when the corpse released an unknown pathogen into the air, bypassing even the most secure biohazard suits. And in another terrifying report, he read of experiments conducted on the form-fitting silver singlet worn by many of the recovered bodies. In one instance, a team member tried on the suit, which seemed to suction to his body on its own. Before they could forcefully remove it, he suffered horrifying visions of the world destroyed beneath mushroom clouds. The victim reported an innate sense that the alien entities hated humanity deeply and wanted us gone for unknown reasons. I fucking knew it. An idea which would, surprisingly, surface yet again in regards to another type of alien encounter. Hippie Space Brothers. Since the 1940s, many E.T. contacts report that, rather than the little gray black-eyed dudes we all know, they were visited by blonde-haired humanoids, bringing messages of world peace and a deep concern over the future of our planet. Their messages should be familiar to anyone who has even a passing interest in this body of literature, or who've listened to our show. They claim that we are killing the planet, and that we must change course to prevent calamity. They wish to see our nukes dismantled, ecological damages reversed, and our wars ended. Such was the case when former NASA contractor P.T. McGavin had his own close encounter experience. Years after his work with NASA, by then a successful owner of a bed and breakfast, McGavin's world was suddenly overturned when he heard a disembodied female voice command him to go to Aztec, New Mexico, a small town in the Four Corners area. The voice continued to repeat the command, and eventually he grabbed his keys and set out to make the 350-mile-long journey, traveling to a location in the desert where a UFO crash was said to have occurred on top of a mesa in 1948. When he got there, he climbed the mesa on foot, sat down, and waited until he fell asleep. He was awoken by a low humming around 2 a.m. and saw a black triangular UFO in the skies above him, from which a human-looking man emerged. The entity was reported to be six feet in height, blonde-haired, and dressed in a one-piece gray outfit. He introduced himself as Gavon. Gavon told McGavin that his people had been visiting Earth since World War II, and that they had since lived among humans as observers until the emergence of the A-bomb and the ongoing ecological obliteration of the planet compelled them to act. But they could only do so much. As he reported, only 40 or so of his people had chosen to remain on Earth, and they used holographic technologies to present the idea that they represented a much larger alien fleet. 
Their goal? To lead humanity out from the shadows of annihilation and into a world of peace and love. But as McGavin drove home, he couldn't shake the feeling that he had been deceived in some way. Eventually, he contacted some old friends from NASA's Gemini program, and six weeks after, he was contacted by a Mr. Callanan, who wished to speak with him on behalf of NASA's security. They met at the Denver airport, where McGavin gave a full rundown of his encounter. Callanan didn't seem surprised by any of the details, and added that McGavin was right not to trust the shining Space Brother. According to Callanan, the Space Brothers were not aliens at all. They were, in fact, the last vestiges of an ancient Earth-based race that predated humanity, and were the origin of the Atlantis myth, as well as stories of other hyper-advanced lost civilizations. Well, once they were the unquestioned rulers of the world, humanity's constant expansion and a series of calamities forced them underground. Callanan further claimed that NASA knew of these people, and had even captured two of their members. As he explained, their species was fighting for its life due to genetic issues, and sought to reclaim the planet from humanity in order to subjugate us and use our genetic material to save their own. Move your feet, lose your seat. Huh. This idea of a terrestrial super race would be later dubbed the Crypto-Terrestrials by researcher Mac Tonys. As for Callanan, no man of that name ever resurfaced in the public record. And there is more weird UFO-NASA connections beside, from NASA's involvement in investigating alien abduction cases, to their nebulous connections to the Roswell incident, and NASA's public disagreements with astronaut Edgar Mitchell. However, this section has already gone on long enough, and enough has been said to suggest that NASA may have had some involvement in the UFO cover-up, and, as the stories in our next section show, that interest extends far beyond the borders of the United States. But before we get there, we have our first discussion question. Boom. So, while reading these sections of the book, I couldn't help but think about the concept of the circus we discussed regarding other books featuring hippie space brothers, uh, specifically Grant Cameron's The Portals and UFOs of Mount Shasta. There we discussed the pageantry surrounding UFO events and what that may indicate about the intentions and goals of ET visitants. Flipping the script, I couldn't help but notice that there seems to be no end to unnamed sources claiming deep knowledge of secret UFO affairs and who seem inexplicably comfortable with sharing those details with UFO researchers. With that in mind, I had to wonder, could these various explanations be another type of circus meant to distract from some core truth? Put another way, does the existence of many contradictory conspiracy theories lead you to believe that there is something behind the smoke and mirrors which the powers that be are concealing behind conspiracy? Or are we just chasing the claims of liars and hucksters? I think... It's a little bit of a couple things here. Um, uh, unfortunately, I'm gonna. Uh, the 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 truth is that a lot of these people, um, unfortunately or whatever, uh, and and it, it, there there's gonna be there's a lot of liars. Yeah. No. I mean, absolutely. And and the the fact of the matter is, uh, for a lot of these, especially the these stories where these people, these unnamed people who we cannot trace, that we cannot find any uh, reference to or any knowledge of their existence. Now, that could be two things, right? It could be it could be an alien or a man, a man in black, a CIA, somebody CIA. It could be somebody who's concealing their identity. Or it's a useful tool for somebody to say the thing that they want to say but cannot say because of X, Y, Z reason, whatever they decide. It could also be a way of manufacturing supporting evidence. Exactly. Like I, you know, it's not me that's saying that it's, that, that it's 
uh, that this person isn't an alien, but rather somebody who, you know, is, rather it's an Atlantean. It's this other guy mm-hmm. that's saying this thing. Convenient, especially when we can't find said person, you know, or any trace of said person. Now, that being said, there may be some truth to some of the some of this. But like you said, uh, you know, thinking about the UFOs uh, of Mount Shasta, I couldn't help but get the feeling throughout that entire book that Ricardo, Ricardo? Yeah, I believe that was his name, yeah. Uh, was, uh, was a huckster, you know, and, you know, Grant Cameron is very convinced and even defended him very strongly in our, in, in our, uh, in our interview with him. But even with that, I still can't help but shake the fact that all of this was just a little too convenient, even for a UFO story. Because, and here's the thing, and this is probably a bad baseline, but I can't help myself but utilizing this as a baseline. In all of the works that we've read, you know, there's been people like Grant Cameron who've had these like really extravagant experiences. And I'm not saying that he's a liar, but a lot of that experience was uh, uh, probably further enhanced by the fact that he believed Ricardo, right? Uh, why hasn't anything like that to that extreme happened to Jacques Vallée? That's a fair point. Well, that we know of. That, that In the works that we've read so far. Yeah. I mean, not a lot seems to happen personally to Valet, at least in his writings. Right. And that is, and I'm not saying that Valet is the gold standard, but you would think for somebody who's been involved in this field as much as he has, that he would have had some of these similar experiences. Yeah. Which is just, uh, which it to me just makes it seem like it makes it harder, not harder. It just makes it like it, it, it makes me take a lot of like this kind of information with a grain of salt because I find it hard to believe uh, any kind of information that's delivered to me via third party and then the 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 third party is delivering information from an unnamed source. Yeah, well, so what we have, I mean, and specifically in the story of P.T. McGavin, we have, okay, so we have P.T. McGavin, who is interviewed by a ufologist. So already there's a level of separation. Mm-hmm. And then P.T. McGavin, uh, yeah, so P.T. McGavin speaks to an entity named Gavin that we cannot verify exists at all, and then to Mr. Callanan that we can't verify exists at all. So at this point, we're now four stages, the truth is four stages removed from the point of view writing the, the narrative. Right. And, and, that's, and, and ultimately, that's fine. Right. Like this information was given to us and some of it might be true. Sure. You know, there there might have been that that entity uh, and that that bit likely was true. But the information that came after that, I struggle with, you know. Well, and it, it seems like I don't know, like I couldn't help but think if I had to mistrust one person in that narrative, assuming let's assume all those events happened. It would be Mr. Callanan. Yeah. Oh, anybody who comes swinging in with the, this is an Atlantean or this is this with 100% certainty, like, no. <laughs> no. Well, and the other thing is that what that does. Okay, so let's assume then, let's say Mr. Callanan was the shady one in this situation. And Gavon was giving, say, an accurate assessment of his intentions and goals. Well, if there is some hippie space brother enclave on the planet that is trying to uh, correct our destructive ways, 
I could see, <laughs> I could see there being efforts to uh, counteract them with disinformation in order to maintain the status quo. Absolutely, absolutely. And Kalanen or whatever, totally get Men in Black vibes. Oh yeah, I, I definitely, especially the mysterious meeting in an airport, and yep. he he landed, had a conversation, got back on a plane, and flew away. Yeah, serious Men in Black vibes. I only had a day pass from the institute. <laughs> I had to go back immediately. Jay, what did you think? In terms of the question, no, I don't think there's one central truth behind all of the contradictory stories, simply because there being one central truth behind all of the conspiracies is far too convenient an answer for human beings on the planet Earth to ever be given. Huh. Um, and also, like, at the end of the day, if it's just like, oh, NASA's hiding the real truth from us and they're sowing all of these, they're, they're sowing millions of disinformation campaigns that are all contradicting each other to hide the truth that we are sentient Pez. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just like, how much time and money do you think NASA fucking has? Like, we actually, no. we can, we know how much money they have. Yeah, we know exactly how much money hey. NASA has and it's not enough to do this and all the other shit that they're responsible Every for. Every year they beg for more bang yes yes and fucking the fucking white house is like you may have 50 cents and it's like we are the greatest accomplishment (laughs) 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 the bottom line this is always where i struggle with conspiracy theories is there is such an assumption of competence on the part of governing bodies that just simply does not exist yeah, I mean, just looking at our governing body alone, uh, you know, we had, the the Pentagon had one point two trillion dollars or whatever, and eighty uh, percent of it or whatever that was is just missing. We don't snacks. We think we may have spent it on snacks. If I lost one point two trillion dollars, I would be taken to some all the way prison, some deep black site where I'd be tortured for eternity. You wouldn't make it there. You'd just be dead. I don't know. They might try to torture the uh, torture me to see if I could remember where I left it. He doesn't remember. <laughs> Turns out it's just in the couch, just in the couch cushions. Uh, how, you can't physically fetch that. <sighs> One point two trillion dollars, right in the couch cushions. Yeah, I mean, you know, with those special million dollar uh, bills that you got, yeah. you. Uh, but I think at that point, the couch is made out of $1 million bills. Yes. Yes. That's yes, what. Indeed. That's where we're at. Yep. Jesus fucking Christ. And even that is one million dollar bills is would still not be enough. It would still like fill the living room. If you think about how much money a trillion dollars actually is. Oh, yeah. No, it's ridiculous. A billion dollars is unimaginable. So in terms of uh, the, the sheer amount uh, of money like our brain literally can't comprehend th- th- amounts larger than like 10,000. I think they said. Yeah. Uh, it, I, I saw a, uh, a reference to like helping put it into perspective, the amount like a billion is, and I don't remember the exact details, but they used it like, but they used a, the reference point was with it with time. And it was like a million was the equivalent to like 30 seconds or something like that. And a billion was years. Yeah. It, oh, it was, if you, I gave you $5,000, this is what it, it was something like, if I gave you $5,000 a day for you to get to a million dollars, it would take you like a few months, something like that. But if I gave you $5,000 a day, it would take you 540 something years to get 
a billion dollars. So I, I just looked it up because I was curious, uh, and this is absolutely off point. But uh, so a million seconds is equivalent to one week, four days, yeah. thirteen hours, forty six minutes, and forty seconds. A billion seconds is equal to thirty one and a half years. Yep, that is absolutely insane. Yeah, and there is there there are people in the world with billions of dollars, and they should all die. <laughs> wow. Uh, if it helps, a trillion seconds is equal to 31,710 years. 31,000? 31, yeah, 31,000 years huh. with change. Is that all? Yeah. And uh, if those were dollars, the Pentagon lost them, <laughs> which is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't believe they lost. I think that that is where the UFO money is. Jesus fucking yeah, Christ. Right. Just circling back to my point. You know how much an anti gravetic craft would cost to build? Well, it was free. I don't believe that. They had to pay the aliens. They had a, they had a fucking car payment. <laughs> I swear to God, if we are in debt to intergalactic car salesmen, I am going to hang every member of the we're, U.S. government. We're in debt to the, uh, the Intergalactic Federation of Light or whatever. This is a good time to remind the audience and FBI at home that this show is largely uh, us being jackasses. Jay is not going to attempt to do that, and I will stop them. Don't Who worry. We would have the time. We have to work full-time jobs and exactly. shit. I'm pretty sure if Jay decided to execute the entire government, they'd just stop going to work. Yeah, well, Jay doesn't have the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the time outside of work to do that. Mm -mm, nope, not with game and not with the podcast. And I not... also don't have the fine motor skills to tie that many nooses without them just slipping apart the minute I put a person in them. Okay, so we've got it. Jay's rise, at, rise to power as the American dictator is limited ultimately <laughs> by their lack of hand-eye coordination and the fact that we force them to do a podcast about aliens. Yep, that's correct. Got it. You guys are doing a public service. <laughs> anyway, back to the question. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't think that there is one grand truth behind all of the contradictory nonsense. And I definitely don't believe that NASA is sowing all of the contradictory um nonsense to keep us from the great secret of our proud Pez heritage. Um, I think it's I think people just make things up sometimes because they're lonely or they did way too much acid in the late 70s and now they can't remember what happened on that trip uh, to, to Birmingham and they think maybe they got abducted by aliens and they want to tell people about it. And I, it's may, probably some of these stories are true. Probably. I, I, believe a, I, I believe a small percentage of contactees and abductees that we've studied. Um, but yeah, the the bottom line is no. I don't I don't think there's a grand central truth. I think that there are a lot of people that have some information and are making wild claims based off of their extrapolations of those small information, and I think other people are just making shit up because they are bored. I, I mean, so answering my own question a bit, I I I agree for the most part. I also think uh that many conspiracy theories, or at least these uh, apocryphal stories we encounter in the books we read, uh, might come about not through any sort of malicious lying, but a gradual series of exaggerations. Uh, like, let's say P.T. McGavin had this encounter, right? Uh, he ha Maybe that encounter happened exactly as he described it. And then we enter Mr. Callanan. This guy contacts him 
saying, hey, we should meet. They have a shadowy meeting at the airport. Well, what if instead he was just at the airport and a guy walked up to him babbling about aliens? He tells that to the UFO investigator who's writing this down. That UFO investigator has to turn that into a narrative that is compelling to readers to sell books. So a little bit gets exaggerated. Then some other ufologist references that story in their own work, and they exaggerated it a little more. And we, that's when we start getting these, uh, these, these diverse, different conspiracy theories, which all seem very similar, but can't agree with each other on any of the base facts. I, that said, I do think it's possible that uh, there is some truth within, many, within some conspiracy theories, and I think it's quite possible that in situations where there is a, a well-known conspiracy theory that has truth to it, the powers that be would it would behoove them to disseminate other competing theories in order to create a sort of smokescreen. I could see that happening on not on a massive scale where, like Jay was saying, it's all conspiracies have one truth. But in small instances, I could see it happen specifically with this guy got a message from E.T. that we don't like. We're going to give him a contradicting a contradicting statement. And that's going to confuse matters all the more. I mean, because we know that there, it was fair, it's been fairly well confirmed that at least far back, into, at least in the 70s and 80s, the intelligence community was watching the UFO community. Yeah. And they, they had people going to their events and they had people listening in because there was a real fear that those people might someday become a security risk. Now, that could be because, oh, God, they're going to unveil our horrible UFO secrets. It could also be because, oh, God, these nerds are going to try to storm Area 51 and then we're going to have to shoot them. Um, another reason that the that intelligence agencies that likely contributed to why they were monitoring them is in that era, uh, that was during the big cult boom. Yeah. And there are a lot of UFO cults and the fact that these were now cults specifically obsessed with uncovering government secrets. Yeah, it makes perfect sense that the FBI, CIA and was the NSA around back then? Oh, God, I don't remember. I don't think they were, but I'm not fully versed on my history of alphabet soup. Yeah, I don't. 1952. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's possible the NSA was also watching a couple of them at that point, but yeah, that does not that does not surprise me at all and there's yeah, because UFO cults are dangerous because most violent cults are dangerous and then if you have a bunch of if you have a bunch of mini Jones towns running around going like the government is keeping our Pez heritage from us, um yeah, you're you're going to want to watch those people. This whole secret Pez heritage thing is going to become a running metaphor for you, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right, so let's move into the next section. Section 2, Foreign Affairs. While NASA's potential involvement in covering up UFO events on U.S. soil is still very much in the realm of conspiracy theory, their overall interest in global UFO events is not, and official documentation would seem to support this. Between 1973 and 1974, there was a large UFO flap over Spain, beginning in the, I'm going to butcher all of these names, El Farel del Cadillo region, where a brightly lit circular craft was seen silently cruising the skies. Later that December, a full flying saucer was seen hovering in the skies above the city of Malaga, and in March 1974, a number of witnesses, including two police officers, witnessed three pencil-shaped craft fly over Castile de las Gardas. A short few hours later, a local chauffeur was out driving when he saw a bright object in the skies above a moment before his engine died. 
Though it wasn't until March 26, 1974, that an event occurred which would become central to NASA's interest in these affairs. On the day in question, a young truck driver was out on his route when he spotted a saucer in the skies above. It swooped down in front of his truck, forcing him to slam on his brakes and watch in astonishment as the craft landed on the road in front of him. Two humanoids emerged, pointed at him, and then got back inside their craft before it zipped away. They just pointed at him. Like you do. Again, this might be like Space PETA and Space Taurus, where if it's just like, oh my god, oh my god, look at it, oh my <laughs> god, it's looking right at us, oh my god. And I was just thinking like the angry monkey from Family Guy. Yeah, that's where I was thinking too. Like an accusatory stare, you! Yeah. A few hours later, according to a declassified U.S. Department of Defense report, three silver ships were spotted by witnesses parked alongside the road. One witness in particular reported being chased by humanoid figures who emerged from the craft, forcing him to hide in a ditch. And there was more, from sightings of craft flying alongside passenger aircraft to sightings of strange rhomboid craft tumbling through the sky. It seemed that Spain was absolutely infested with Venusians. All of which NASA took a keen interest in. U.S. intelligence reports about the incident were all forwarded to NASA as they were received, and the organization made repeated requests for more information or supporting evidence. Such would also be the case when the country of Bolivia experienced its own infestation of anomalous craft. In May 1978, a U.S.-based research group, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, or CAUSE, began digging into a United Press International report that a UFO had crashed in the Bolivian wilderness. Despite assurances from NASA's PR department that they had no knowledge of or any interest in this event, documents later discovered and released by CAUSE tell a very different story. The crashed object was reported in Bolivian newspapers to be egg-shaped, and there were multiple local witnesses who attested to it crashing in an underdeveloped area of the Bolivian jungle near the Argentinian border. The American CIA took an interest, following the case via correspondences with the American embassy in Bolivia, which were in turn forwarded to NASA. Early CIA reports, since declassified or released via the Freedom of Information Act, further note that the CIA initially believed the crashed object had been retrieved by the Bolivian military and that it had been confirmed to be an artificial craft of unknown design. Subsequent CIA reports show the agency working to get a better idea of what was actually happening in Bolivia. However, the reports that came out were contradictory to say the least. Early reports from within the Bolivian military indicated that a mechanical device, four feet in diameter, had been recovered, while later reports indicated that they had failed to identify the crash site in the first place. Due to these inconsistencies caused dug deeper, and uncovered reports of an expedition by the Bolivian military and state scientists to the supposed impact site, where they found evidence of a crash in the form of a 300-foot-long gouge in the earth. However, no craft was recovered, though that may just be because we took it. In June 1979, a former U.S. intelligence officer, Leonard H. Stringfield, received information from an Argentinian investigator that witnesses had seen a Hercules aircraft lifting an object away from the crash site. One of Stringfield's own CIA sources later confirmed that such a flight had occurred, but was unable to comment on what cargo the flight was carrying. Adding to the mystery, Redfern submitted several FOIA requests to the U.S. government concerning this affair, and received in return several reports that were stamped with NASA letterhead. They detailed the discovery of small metal disks that were said to have gently floated to the ground on several farms near the crash site. Other documents indicated that NASA had also received detailed photographs and videos of these objects, but when Redfern requested access to those, he was told that they were lost. 
In another example, a document from December 3, 1989 was forwarded to NASA from the CIA and detailed a UFO crash that occurred in the USSR one day after the Challenger space shuttle tragedy. Supposedly occurring in the rural area known as Hill 611, near the village of Dalnogorsk in the Primorsky Cray, witnesses reported a craft hurtling at incredible speeds into the side of a mountain. Soviet investigation of the scene led to the recovery of a large number of metallic artifacts. And in 1996, the CIA again forwarded several files to NASA regarding another such crash in Somaliland, one which seemed to cause strange effects on the mental and physical health of both animals and people in the area, with symptoms including dementia, rashes, boils, aching stomachs, and skin shedding. Gross. All of which ultimately only proves one thing, that NASA was at least interested, and that interest was well known within the intelligence community. How seriously they took these claims, or any actions they took to further investigate them, remain unknown. Which brings us to our second discussion question. So, one question that often comes up when it comes to the topic of UFOs is why it appears that so many world governments are content to allow the United States to take the lead in these affairs. For example, we have suggestions that the USA secreted away the Bolivian UFO, and other rumors of a similar vein have been raised about other international incidents such as Rendlesham Forest and the Somaliland crash. So the question is, why? Putting on our believer caps and assuming all of this happened for a moment, why would the rest of the world allow the U.S. to take sole authority over potentially paradigm-changing technologies and discoveries? Um, keeping my believer cap on, I can do some wild speculating about That's basically why. what I want. Um, well, the first answer that springs to mind is that we didn't ask, we told, and the other governments were like, exactly how violent are you going to get if we don't give you that downed craft? And we just stared at them silently across the, across the table, and they're like, oh boy. Did you see what happened to Granada? One college student. It was one college student, and he was fine. Yeah, we kept saying college student wasn't one UFO. Take the stupid craft. Just get the fuck out of my... Just get the fuck out of here before you fucking colonize us again. You fuckers. So, yeah. So, I think the most likely explanation in that scenario is we literally are strong-arming other governments out of UFO technology, and that is going to um, have devastating consequences for us in anywhere from 50 years to tomorrow. I like that range. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the other example might, the other uh, explanation that I can wildly speculate about is also rooted in fear, but it might be more of them going, hey, uh, we don't know what the fuck this is, and we're not sure we have the facilities to study it, and we're not sure if we have the weapons if we have any weapons or defenses capable of protecting ourselves, should the actual owners of this craft show up to take it back? So maybe let's just give it to the Americans because I'm not sure a host of angels could kill those fuckers. I think that, that both of those options uh, are very likely. I mean, those both make a lot of sense to me. Uh, mm -hmm. The third and final one that I have is it's entirely possible that other world governments, for various reasons, just don't care nearly as much as we do. Um, when I was super into anime, when I was much younger, apparently one of the running jokes in Japan is about how obsessed with aliens Americans are. 
like apparently to a lot of our closest allies, it's just considered this weird, quirky thing about our culture that we're so into aliens when like apparently the rest of the world is still figuring out how to care. Yeah, so that was my whole point. Was uh was the U.S. is the uh U.S. and Russia are the two that have expressed the most interest in uh, aliens, and so when something like that happens, the rest of the world <clears throat> just kind of looks at us and goes, "So do you want to deal with this or not?" Nah? You know, it, it does make me wonder if there is uh you know the whole idea of uh you know the they didn't have the facilities to deal with it. I do wonder if the U.S. ever just went to them and be like, "Hey." We'll buy that off you. Yeah, and that was going to be my next. The next thing I was going to talk about was uh, then. Honestly, we probably give them money or or stuff, you know, for in exchange for this because a lot of a lot of these a lot of these governments they they probably don't have the capability to uh, uh, to even research it. Whereas we are you know, we dedicate uh, large swaths of money to just researching new shit uh, and then, you know, putting it into uh, in, into our own uh, our own agencies who then go and research essentially whatever the fuck they want within, you know, uh, governmental well, approvals and whatnot. And that's only counting what's officially on the books. I, right, I, not including any kind of black budget, um, black, uh, you know, black budget operations like uh, like uh, uh, ATIP and and OSAP and all all of those that we know existed, you know. Well, and like I was only half joking earlier when I said that the missing one point two trillion dollars went into a UFO. I I do think there's a good possibility a good amount of that money went into black programs. Yeah, I, most of those probably aren't UFO related. Now there might be some that are related to things like remote viewing. Because I'm sure that that's still happening. Like I'm very sure that stuff like that is still happening, um, and other programs like that. the The reason why I don't think that the vast majority went into UFOs is because that's a ludicrous amount of money. Yeah, well, it's it's a ludicrous amount of money, but also like for them to be investing 1.2 trillion dollars into UFOs. They've got to know more. It would mean that they know, you know an invasion fleet is on the way, right? And <laughs> and and the and the fact of the matter is, I do not, in any way, buy that they that they know that much more than what they're letting on. I think, if anything, we have we the people have uh, put the put these uh, agencies on a pedestal to imply that they know more because we need them to know more. But the, I think the fact of the matter is they, they do in quotations, know more. Right. But I don't think if we, if we have craft, I don't think we've ha been able to do anything with it. I don't think we know diddly dick about it because we have no way of knowing, it. well, knowing, yep. uh, knowing anything about this other than, yep, there it is. Yeah. So there is a, a pretty persistent, uh, idea that I've seen come up in in several uh, you know writings from ufologists and UFO researchers uh that the craft that we have are basically collecting dust yep. and that every seven or so years they take it off the shelf look at it again and say well have we progressed to the point that we can handle this nope put it back on the shelf yep. we'll see you in seven years I don't I I know either it was in a book that we read or it was in a podcast that you and I both listen to 
because uh, I remember that exact talking point being talked about at some point. I want to say it was Jimmy Sem- Jim Semivan, but I can't be sure. It could have also been in a documentary we watched. That's true. To I be mean, fair, we, after we intake so much, after of a year this, and a half of yeah. the show, it's all becoming a nice, healthy soup of mental illness. Yeah, <laughs> though uh, you know, in mental illness, but also like you know, fun conversation topics. Oh, absolutely, because I love uh, anytime somebody at work brings up the topic of like UFOs or, or parapsychology in any way, I literally just turn around in my chair and I listen for quite a while and I kind of gauge where they're at in the conversation. And then when I see a point, I interject myself into that conversation and then I just slam dunk with, uh, <laughs> with knowledge. And then they all just kind of stare at me and I'm like, yep, this is what I do for fun. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even considered that maybe we were straight up like buying the UFOs off of other governments that, well, that didn't I, even I'm occur. sure money talks. Yeah. And honestly, that would probably be a better long term solution than just taking it. Well, of like, we, we may be thieves. Yeah. But we're honorable thieves. It, Honorables in quotations. Yeah. And also, it might not be like we're we're referring to this under the assumption of we're taking sole possession of downed craft. Believer cap on, it might be something like, we get a call from the South African government and they're like, yeah, um, we've got another one. We've got one of our teams looking at it and they just reported back and said that they don't have the facilities to study this as closely as they wanted to. And we're just like, oh, OK. And we come over, retrieve it. The team that's already working on it. And then the craft and the team are just here using our facilities and it becomes a joint project between two governments. Well, and that, I, that, I, that... I like to imagine that they do that, but I don't think that I think that the second that it gets to a, an American military site, there is nobody from a foreign government uh, even allowed within 100 miles of it that's that's true if it's on american soil they wouldn't be letting foreign scientists in if we had a base that we built on their soil uh, that was, maybe uh, i was gonna say that being said we know that we have black sites in other countries you know and it, it i mean i like that idea because it implies that behind the scenes there is this kind of large agreement to work together and the governments really are kind of uh, in collusion with each other to to secure the future of the species. And there is almost a reassuring element to that idea because there's this idea that, no, no, we're not a bunch of warring, horrid ape tribes. That's only what it looks like. Because here's the thing. We have... We have examples of successful international cooperation, acid rain, the hole in the ozone layer, the eradication of smallpox. All of that is the cooperation of pretty much every sovereign government on Earth pulling together and working in tandem. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, as a leader, if you do your job right, people think you haven't done anything at all. That's why it's so easy to despair about international cooperation, because when we do cooperate internationally as a global family, it's so effective. Civilians at our level don't even notice that something happened. Yeah. The unfortunate side of this that I think we need to consider, though, is that uh, the only way that the UFO agenda moves forward in the United States as of right now is through the lens of national security which means that if we are talking about it as national security, we're not cooperating with anybody. Yeah. 
I mean, we might we might try in the sense of we'll keep you informed and we'll tell them that we'll keep them informed. But we're intensely paranoid. Right. And that is I mean, that's the other side of being a global leader like this is that we constantly have a target on our back and we constantly act like we have a target on our back. Which puts more targets on our back because everyone starts going, what the fuck are you hiding? Right. Because and uh, and we are hiding a shitload. We're hiding and, so and, and, much. And, and, and but with good reason. You know, because there are there are countries out there that would like to see us flattened. That's just the plain and simple truth of it. Um, that being said, um, I, I, I like to imagine that when it comes to dealing with aliens and UFOs, when, it, you know, the, inside other countries that we are cooperating. I don't necessarily think that we are ever giving the full truth because uh, we don't ever give the full truth, but... I like to imagine that we're at least paying them for their uh, for their alien craft. Yeah, I, I like that idea, too. I mean, I, like I said, I love the idea. As much as I, I know it is a, a hallmark of uh, conspiracy theory, there's a part of me that kind of loves the idea of a secret shadow government that is above the world governments that's kind of controlling, uh, controlling some of these meta-species-wide issues. And I, I think it's because there is a degree of comfort in knowing that it's not up to chaos, that someone is looking at it, someone is dealing with it, even if they're dealing with it in ways I don't approve of. I still think that that is, I think that's definitely an element of it. And actually, we'll get to this in future questions, but I think that that idea is pretty central to a lot of why people are attracted to conspiracy theories in the first place. But it that's is. a topic for our next question. Well, on that note, are we ready for section three? Yep. On July 20th, 1969, the world watched with bated breath as astronauts Eugene Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, and Neil Alden Armstrong achieved the impossible and left their indelible mark on the legacy of our species when they first walked on the moon. I like how uh, Buzz got both his middle name and a nickname, but Michael Collins got nothing but his first and last name. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think Buzz came with Buzz. I don't think that got that was attached to him after the fact. No, I don't think so either. But like in the book or whatever, he did like the full out, and it just I just thought that was. Turns funny. out Michael Collins like his his nickname was just not fit for print. Yeah, <laughs> Michael the fucker Collins. Michael Ass Muncher Collins, <laughs> American hero. <laughs> This was a moment of triumph for not only the United States and NASA, but for all of humanity. It was a promise of the future and of an era of galactic exploration and discovery. Or was it? As some claim in full defiance of science and basic common sense, this was not a moment of human triumph, but a vile deception. Quote, Certainly, there is a very deep suspicion and even an overwhelming cynical acceptance on the part of a whole swaths of the American population that the Apollo moon landings were nothing less than outrageous trickery, the purpose of which was to instill in the minds of the Soviet hierarchy the firm belief that American technology was far in excess of anything with which the best minds of the Russian scientific community could ever hope to compete. The argument most often voiced by proponents of this theory is simply that Russia was too far ahead of the U.S. in the space race, having been the first to send up a satellite and the first to send a man into orbit. The claim is that there was simply no way for American scientists to catch up and then overtake their Soviet rivals. So prevalent is this idea that some members of government even supposedly believe it. And in 1999, a full 6% of Americans, around 18 million people, fully believed that the Apollo moon missions were faked. 
In a way, denying the moon landing has become a part of the American cultural mythos. The conspiracy was memed and was referenced in songs, movies, and television. As the Red Hot Chili Peppers' 1999 hit Californication goes, space may be the final frontier, but it's made in a Hollywood basement. But where did this idea even begin? Redfern traces this conspiracy back to one man, Bill Casing, and his 1974 book titled We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 Billion Swindle. According to Casing, NASA knew it didn't have the technological prowess to send a man to the moon or even match the success of the Russians. As such, the decision was made to film a fake landing in a Hollywood studio, tapping none other than legendary filmmaker Stanley Kubrick to create the fake. And what evidence did he have? As you might have guessed, absolutely none. Rather, in true conspiracy theory fashion, Casing fixated on two open-ended questions whose answers he refused to believe or consider. One, why were there no visible stars in the moon landing video? And two, if the moon is in a vacuum, then why can the American flag be seen to briefly flutter, as if in a wind? The answer to these questions are very simple. As for the missing stars, the fact is that filming in space is difficult. The full light of the sun, without an atmosphere to filter it, is exceedingly bright, and the camera had to be configured with such a high aperture as to render the fainter starlight invisible. And the mysterious fluttering flag? A quick look at the moon landing video will show that the flag only moved when it was being touched by one of the astronauts. But who would Casing be if he let small things like basic common sense get in his way? Rather, he doubled down, and soon his claims became even more absurd. For example, he accused NASA of having been responsible for the 1967 Apollo 1 fire, which claimed the lives of astronaut Virgil Grimson, Edward White, and Roger Chaffee. He further blamed them for deliberately causing the explosion of the Challenger space shuttle. Quote, Casing's personal reasoning on these matters was deadly simple, and, in his mind, bolstered his initial theories concerning the Apollo moon landings. The Apollo 1 and Challenger astronauts, Casing came to conclude and accept, may very well have stumbled across undeniable evidence of NASA's secret special effects trickery, and, as a consequence, had to be silenced, no matter what the terrible cost to life, to limb, and to the future of the NASA space program. All of this eventually led to Casing attempting to sue NASA astronaut Jim Lavelle for libel after Lavelle called Casing's claims unsupported nonsense. The case was dismissed in 1999, and Casing died on April 21st, 2005. Can you imagine the gall of standing there with your full chest going, the leaders of NASA assassinated American heroes in front of all of our eyes, and then accusing someone else of slandering you? I Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the fucking... This is not the pot calling the kettle black. This is the kettle insisting that a cat is a kettle. May we all have the unreasonable gall of Casing. As for his theories, the fact is that his ideas are not supported by the evidence. For the moon landing to have been faked, it would have required full compliance from the half a million people who worked on the Apollo programs. Even if only 2% of them knew about the conspiracy, this would still require 10,000 people to all keep a secret both then and all the way up now to the modern day. Do you really think if Stanley Kubrick shot the most famous footage of all time. Do you really think he never would have said anything? Do you really think? Artists love credit. Do you really think Stanley Kubrick would have allowed there to not be stars in the photo? <laughs> Furthermore, the existence of astronaut footprints on the moon and the moon rocks they brought back are further physical evidence which disprove Casing's wild theory. 
That's just gravel. However, it ain't even meat or cheese. Bite into it. Your teeth just shatter. God damn it, Jay. <laughs> However, that isn't to say that casing is representative of all conspiracy theorists. Some, such as researcher Mac Tonys, formulate their theories on much more stable footing, as shown in the controversy surrounding the face of Mars. Quote, Located in an area of the planet Mars known today as Sidonia, bearing an uncanny resemblance to a human visage, is a huge structure that lies 10 degrees north of the Martian equator. It was first photographed on July 25, 1976, by NASA's Viking 1 space probe, which was orbiting the planet at the time, and was brought to the attention of the public in a NASA press release on the photograph six days later. It has since become universally and infamously known as the face on Mars. No sooner had the image of the face been released that the UFO theorists jumped on it to forward claims that this was proof of ancient habitation of the Red Planet by an unknown and possibly extinct Martian society. Of course, NASA was quick to attribute the apparent appearance of a human face to Parandolia, caused by shadows playing across the surface of just one of Mars' many mesas. But this explanation fell short for many researchers, including one Richard Hoagland who published his suspicions in a 1987 book, The Monuments of Mars, which, strangely, would also go on to spawn a successful video game of the same name. Hoagland was the first to note the appearance of pyramidal structures in the landscape directly surrounding the face, which he believed proved the objects were artificially constructed. But it wouldn't be for several more years, with the release of images from NASA's Mars Global Surveyor probes in 1998 and 2001, and those of the Mars Odyssey probe in 2002, that theorists would have the chance to prove their ideas with clearer images of the face, taken from different angles and under different lights. Unfortunately, those images seemingly revealed that NASA had been correct in their original assessment, and the Mesa in no way resembled a face when viewed in full definition. But that wasn't enough for those who'd already climbed onto the Martian bandwagon, and theorists began throwing accusations that NASA had digitally altered the photos prior to release in order to downplay any notions of an ancient Martian civilization, a development we can largely credit to researcher Mac Tonys and his 2004 book titled After the Martian Apocalypse. Dissatisfied with NASA's attempts to downplay the face of Mars, Tonys began an assessment of all available images of the Martian surface, zeroing in on both the face and a structure that was dubbed the DNM Pyramid, after its discovery by digital imaging specialists Vincent DiPetro and Gregory Molinar. The pair had been working under contract at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center at the time, where they got direct access to the original Viking probe photos, in which they found an image taken during a previously unknown second pass over the face, one which clearly showed the shape of the face in even greater detail than the original image. They could clearly make out eroded facial features, such as the curve of a mouth, a sloping brow line, and even small striations in the soil that may have once been an iris. Later images taken by astronomer Tom Van Flandern confirmed these findings, and also uncovered further details, including what might be a nostril. On their end, NASA ignored these theories, and never launched any official study into the face or the surrounding pyramids. Meanwhile, the theorists contend that if any such structures had been found on Earth, it would have been easily accepted as an artifact of a prior civilization. But if they are, then who built them? On this, Tony's had his theories, including that it was built by a long-dead Martian race, that it was built by visitors to our system, and the existentially distressing idea that it was built by humanity. After all, it is a human face, leading Tony's to wonder if mankind may have some ancient origin on the Red Planet. He further theorized that these structures were not built, but were carved into the existing landscape as part of a massive-scale geoengineering project, 
Such a structure would then hold up to the ravages of time better than buildings, roads, and other surface-level evidence of civilization. After a thousand years, only the heavily eroded earthworks would remain. But what of NASA? Is there any proof they actually doctored the later probe images? Well, Tony himself was never a believer in conspiracy theories, and in fact thought the Fuhrer surrounding the face on Mars was preventing legitimate scientists from taking an interest, he did admit that some of the images taken by the 1998 probes did appear to have been passed through a filter which rendered the face as indistinct and vague as possible. However, he also believed we shouldn't use that as a basis to spin off into ungrounded conspiracy theories. To Tony's, the facts were all that mattered, a lesson which some of the sources in our next section could have benefited from. For the record, almost every photo that's taken of space is put through multiple filters, because otherwise, we wouldn't be able to make sense of them. Correct. Yep. It's almost like space is super weird. <laughs> right? All right, third discussion question. In Woo! this book, Redfern presented plenty of theories, but there was little discussion about what it is about these theories that gives them their longevity. For example, why do so many people still today believe the moon landing was faked, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary? Put another way, why are we, as a people, attracted to conspiracy theories? Well, I'm sure Jay will provide us with some uh, actual uh, like psychology behind this. I have no knowledge of, of that, so I'm just going to go off whatever I think. <laughs> it's all we ever ask of you. <laughs> we value your thoughts and opinions. You're very smart, and we love you. Well, thanks. Uh, so I think that people are attracted to conspiracy theories because it's because it fits whatever their worldview is. Like, simply put, um, they believe that the government is lying to them. They believe, for whatever reason, that we don't actually have the capability to get to space. So therefore, it's faked. I don't know why they I don't know why they would believe these things other than an innate distrust of the government. And if the government said it happened, therefore it didn't happen. And we can't and we can't believe that it happened because that's just Big Brother or whatever they say. Well, and I think you're I think uh, you're correct in saying it. it they, they agree with whatever conforms to their beliefs, because specifically regarding space and aliens, for a lot of people, it's a religious issue. Yeah. The, the idea of other planets, of this vast cosmos in which Earth is just one tiny moat, uh, it doesn't jive with the idea of us being God's favorite. Right. And that was uh, what I was going to get into next was, you know, we are, uh, according to some, a Christian nation. That is in quotations because, uh, you know, whatever. I'm not going to harp on that. And in their evangelical eyes, the idea of there being life on other planets, there being really anything outside of this rock that matters, oh, it shatters that perception because the way that they've framed Christianity does almost does not allow for life outside of this planet to exist because, like you said, Nick— that would take away from us being God's favorite. Now, I won't I won't get into this, but I'll just say if you actually look at the Bible and and actually look at these texts, you'll see that none of that is true. At least it doesn't have to be because it doesn't have to be perceived and translated this way. But nonetheless, 
I I think that I I think that there's a weird part of me that thinks that people want to believe in conspiracy theories because it's more fun. You know, because in 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 a way it is. It's more fun to it is more fun to think about these things as if we are fucking inside a, a, a Tom Clancy novel or, you know, somebody be- a better writer than Tom Clancy novel. Uh, <laughs> you just pissed off all the Clancy stands. I'm sorry. He's a bad writer. <laughs> I, and I've read several of his books, so, uh, because my grandma was a fan. You know, everybody has their problems. <laughs> I apologize, Clancy stands, on behalf of the Noctivigant legal team. <laughs> Just cuts to Buffy in a pair of glasses and a tie, a little briefcase sitting next to her. Hello. It's just an opinion, but you know, I, but it is more. It is more fun to uh, imagine that there's all the all these crazy things happening because it gives a sense of wonder and excitement to our to to our you know honestly pretty mundane lives, you know. And uh, I mean that that's part in a way that's part of why I'm so attracted to. Like the par- the paranormal and things like that is it's it's exciting it's interesting, you know. But I like we say repeatedly, but we have no evidence that any of this shit's real. No, you know, well, it, with some exceptions, there is right. You, yeah, you know, because there's actually a lot of uh, evidence if we break it down, you know, and we get into the nitty gritty. But you know what I mean? Yeah, nothing's been conclusively proved in the court of public opinion. Right. But I, I, yeah. So I, I think ultimately, I think the big answer here is why, why are people so attracted to conspiracy theories? Because they have their, they have their idea of how the world is supposed to be, and when it doesn't work that way, they have to find a way, reason why it doesn't work that way, and it's obviously not their fault. It's obviously not something that they're doing wrong. It's obviously somebody or something that is getting in the way of this thing, whatever it might be. Uh, being true or being the being what's happening. That's my thought. Um. So Nick was not Nick was not wrong earlier when he posited that it gives people a sense of control and calm because in many ways, from my at this point, I feel comfortable saying from my professional opinion, people crave a sense of order. It's it's like how isn't the most terrifying moment of your young life the first moment that you realize your parents are not all powerful? Like that's fair. Yeah. Like mo- most of us have that moment before we're too young to um for memories, but like for some of us that do recall that first moment of understanding that our parents are mortal and that there are things mightier than them in the world, that's 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 very terrifying. And a lot of people, a lot of people, I feel like just go through their lives feeling so out of control, so powerless, so at the mercy of the grand chaos of the universe that they're desperately searching for some sort of order or central authority that is the solution to everything. And yeah, I I think for most people conspiracy uh, I think for most people that are hardcore conspiracy theorists that's that's fulfills it and it it is quite like Rory said of it's like there it is. There's the bastard that's responsible for every bad thing in my life. NASA. 
NASA is responsible for every bad thing in my life because they faked the moon landing. They faked the moon landing, they sabotaged the shuttle, they covered up UFOs, and they made Barbara leave me. Yes, they did. They did make Barbara leave you. Um, the other thing is, I think there's also a step beyond that of it makes people feel like an action hero. Of their, their uh, People enjoy the feeling of, I am a subversive agent fighting for our intellectual and spiritual freedom against the shadow government. Like, that's probably a lot more fulfilling for people than, you know, another shift at Safeway. Like, I, people, again, I, it comes back to that feeling of powerlessness, I think, where they they just want to feel like they're in control of something, that they can change something, and then if things don't change, well, it's not their fault. How could they fight the mighty machine of NASA? Um I think a really good example of that is the whole Pizzagate thing. Yes. Because the guy that actually went there with a gun and was like, I, you know, he, he and he didn't do any, he didn't shoot the gun. He didn't do anything. He just was going in there because he believed so strongly that this was happening. And he took matters into his own hands because yep. it was to him within his control at this point. Yep, Exactly. And it's and these conspiracies, the, the set dressing and the flavor text might be different, but that is what all of them are at their core. There is one bad guy. That bad guy might be a might be an organization, but it's still one bad guy. And then there's all of us uh or all of them, the plucky ragtag four channers who are going to defeat this octopus of malice and emerge victorious. And we're going to know that we are sentient Pez and everyone will know that. And ah, Barbara will it. come back. And we're back. Yeah, yes. I, I, I do agree with that. I think it, in a way, it also, it, 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 on the topic of control, it makes the world manageable. Yes. It, it reduces what is ultimately uh, a complex system of chaotic events and uh, contradictory agendas, and it boils it down to one core conflict that can be defeated in a 30-minute episode. Yes. No, I, I, I legitimately believe that that is the root of it. And so... Uh, to answer your more specific question of why do people continue to believe in the moon landing despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, it, it's because for them it's not about the evidence. It, it, it's not about that is someone once gave me the litmus test to see it's like how deep are you into conspiratorial thinking is something that you believe. It's like ask yourself, it's like what would make me Stop believing this. And if the answer is nothing, genuinely nothing would convince you to stop believing in this in this positive theory of how the world works or whatever. Like if nothing could make you believe that the moon landing actually happened, something has psychologically happened to you that needs to be reversed and addressed by a professional, basically, is that there needs to always be basically you need to always accept at any given moment that you might be wrong and you need to be willing to look at evidence that might tell you that you are wrong. Yeah. Uh, well, and it it goes to something that we talk about often with the paranormal, but I, I do think it's an applicable lesson to most of life. Uh, hold your beliefs lightly. Like, don't be wrong, there are things that are worth 
believing into the point that you're going to fight for them. The, these, you know, those grand abstract ideas, truth, justice, love. Uh, but the vast majority of the beliefs by which we order our lives, uh, those should be malleable. We should always be evolving and changing those. What our definition of truth, justice, and love are, that should be updating and evolving based off uh, our experiences and the evidence we encounter throughout the course of our existence. Yep. No, exactly. And also, Rory is correct that there is a lot of justification in personal worldviews if if you believe some of these conspiracies. So that's why we keep coming back to this stupid the moon landing was fake thing is because people are getting something out of it psychologically and emotionally that they desperately need and that they are not getting somewhere else. It's That is the root of all addiction. That is the root of all maladaptive behavior. I am getting something out of this that I need or think I need and I can't get it from any other source. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I I think I agree with everything you guys have been saying. I, I The only thing I'd want to add, uh, which is something actually Redfern did bring up briefly in the book, specifically regarding the moon landing, is that when it comes to space, for a lot of people, anything that happens up there is so dramatically divorced from their everyday experience. I think for a lot of people, it's it's difficult for them to even imagine it exists, let alone that we're operating there, that we've done stuff there. It's so uh, it's it's like someone walked up and said, hey, last night I did this awesome thing in dreamland. And to them, it's it's that's nonsense, because that is so far removed from their everyday experience. That's a good point. Yeah, it's a very good point. Lots of people haven't even been on a plane. Yep. Uh, Most people die, I think, within 50 miles of the town they're born in. Full body shutter. All right. Are we ready for section four? Yes. We're moving through this pretty quick. I mean, it was a pretty brief book. It was a really easy read and even easier listen. The narrator was actually quite good. Oh, was yeah. Good. The narrator was fantastic. Very Australian. <laughs> yes. Kept, uh, kept pronouncing Saudi from like Saudi Arabia Zaudi. And I'm like, that is not what they like to be called. I'm, I'm sorry. What is the difference between someone being Australian and very Australian? It's just a heavy accent. Okay. Yeah, how how heavily I can hear the twang in every single word. Got it. Section four, NASA Murder Mystery Hour. Welcome back to NASA Murder Mystery Hour. This entire program is classified. How did you find this channel? <laughs> Quote, There can be no doubt that NASA's introduction of the space shuttle, which underwent initial tests in 1981 before commencing with regular flights into space the following year, revolutionized both space travel and the agency's leading role in the domain of otherworldly activity. But, major and now historic advances in space exploration aside, there is a distinct high strangeness and cosmic conspiracy attached to the space shuttle program, most of which revolves around the catastrophic losses of the shuttle's Challenger in 1986 and Columbia in 2003. A conspiracy which, at first, was centered around famed scientist Carl Sagan and a mysterious letter he received that seemed to accurately predict the explosion of the Columbia Space Shuttle. On November 16, 1983, a report was filed by the FBI special agent in charge in Cleveland, Ohio, which details how Sagan received a handwritten envelope on November 10th, inside which was a two-page typewritten letter. After a short request for Sagan to distribute the letter to news agencies, the author, identified only as M. Springfield, warned of a series of upcoming catastrophes, including terrorist attacks in El Salvador, 
a new war in the Middle East set to kick off in 1985, the election of Ronald Reagan and the Bushes to follow, the total loss of New York and San Francisco to rising sea levels, as well as the aforementioned Columbia shuttle explosion. A subsequent FBI investigation found no forensic evidence was left on the letter and that the author, M. Springfield, had been dead since 1972. And while the majority of the mystery man's predictions did not come to pass, the fact that he predicted the Columbia explosion was all the proof some conspiracy theorists needed to call foul and to accuse NASA of sabotaging future shuttle missions before they even occurred. An accusation which would come to hound NASA in the wake of the 1986 Challenger shuttle disaster. On January 28th of that year, the Challenger space shuttle exploded one minute after takeoff, claiming the lives of all seven of its crew members. Officially, the cause for the explosion was a failure in one joint that connected the two lower segments of the right rocket motor. But that wasn't good enough for conspiracy theorists, who revived the old calls of treachery before the smoke had even cleared. Eventually, one such theorist stepped forward to propose his own version of the Challenger tragedy, one steeped in conspiracy, murder, and, yes, UFOs. In 2003, self-professed private eye Martin Black publicly claimed that NASA had sabotaged the Challenger shuttle because astronaut Ellis Onizuka planned to blow the lid on the government's UFO cover-up once he returned to Earth. As to why the government would choose to assassinate one man by blowing up an entire crew in a grand public spectacle that set the shuttle program back years and traumatized a nation, Black had no good answers. However, beneath his unsupported claims, there are a few mysteries and coincidences regarding these affairs which only fueled the conspiratorial fires. For example, in 1989, a former U.S. military intelligence officer, suspiciously named Leonard H. Stringfield, eerily close to the M. Springfield who mailed Sagan, claimed that he had spoken to a friend of astronaut Onizuka, who claimed that Onizuka was not only open to the idea of UFOs, but claimed to have been shown videos of alien corpses being autopsied while he was serving in the Air Force. And, much like the letter Sagan received, many FBI offices reported receiving similar communications throughout 1986, beginning two days prior to the Challenger explosion, when the FBI office in Boston filed a report that an unknown caller had phoned Boston's Channel 7 television station, claiming to be part of a trio of people who were going to sabotage the shuttle. The Bureau investigated and found him as he ate dinner at a restaurant. As expected, they could find no evidence supporting the man's claims, and he was in fact mentally ill. Yet, his prediction of the coming calamity still proved to be disturbingly accurate. Meanwhile, on the West Coast, an FBI agent in Santa Ana, California, received information from an unknown source that claimed the Challenger was destroyed by laser beams shot at it from either Cuba or a passing aircraft. As evidence, they noted that in the video of the explosion, a small puff of black smoke can be seen on the side of the shuttle moments before the actual explosion occurs. This possibility was reviewed by scientific authorities who deemed it possible but very unlikely. One month later, the Dallas FBI office was contacted by a man who claimed to work for a Dallas-based video enhancement company. Having used his work equipment to settle a personal curiosity, he was unwilling to give his name for fear of reprisals from his employer. However, he claimed that he ran the Challenger footage through his programs and noted that, right when the mysterious black smoke appeared, a basketball-sized indentation also appeared in the side of the shuttle. The claim was also assessed by NASA, who claimed they could find no supporting evidence. Around the same time, the Washington, D.C. office was also dealing with a similar issue. While the FBI files concerning these events are heavily redacted, a fact which only fuels further claims of conspiracy, 
Redfern did his best to piece together what happened. What is known for sure is that a woman contacted the FBI, claiming to be in contact with, quote, certain psychic forces that provided her with higher information on selected subjects. She refers to these forces as source, and when providing information from source, she often speaks in the collective we. This woman came to D.C. in February 1986 to share her psychic impressions regarding the Challenger explosion. She indicated that it had been the work of terrorists, two of which were still employed as ground workers at the Kennedy Space Center. The third was one of the ill-fated astronauts, seeing out their fanatical vision until the very end. These people, she claimed, were part of an ancient ancestral lineage whom hated the USA and wanted to bring as much terror and embarrassment to the country as they could. Their mission was accomplished with a small explosive device hidden inside one of the shuttle's fuel tanks. While no documentation could be uncovered which supports this theory, or that the FBI ever investigated these claims, the fact that the file was only released after heavy redaction leads some to believe that there was more merit to her claims than one would expect. That and a few other tantalizing tidbits are all that is needed for the conspiracy theory to grow, mutate, and endure. And still today, there are entire forums and groups dedicated to uncovering NASA's dark dealings and the sabotage of the Columbia and Challenger shuttles. Which brings us to the fourth discussion question. So, let's try and put ourselves in the mindset of Martin Black and the other conspiracy theorists discussed in this book, and assume for a moment that we believe he was correct, that the Challenger space shuttle was an act of deliberate sabotage to silence one man's attempt to air the government's dirty UFO laundry. If that was the case, why would they go about killing him in such a spectacular way? And, as a follow-up to our question from Section 3, what is it about tragedies like the Challenger explosion or the 9-11 terrorist attacks that caused the formation of so many conspiracy theories? So the answer to the follow-up to three um, centers back to the desire for control. Human beings are animals with an incredible, with, we have incredibly complex brains. We are, uh, this is actually one of the reasons why people why it bothers me when people refer to the human race collectively as stupid. We're not. We are frighteningly intelligent. Uh, again, we put a man on the moon, which we definitely did. And I'm just saying, I haven't seen fucking dolphins do we, that. We put a man on the moon and we treated it like uh, like a high schooler needing to get their homework in for the next day. Yeah, we, we rush jobbed getting people to the moon. Yep. And then we looked at Russia, went, ha! Went back to Earth, and then we were like, do we want to go back to the moon? And everyone was like, the what? No. <laughs> <laughs> and you you see this with large-scale tragedies where the population will come up with some sort of conspiracy theory or blame it on God due to our sins or blame it on, I don't know, 5G turning us all gay. I don't know. Um but people do it in their personal lives, too. This is a very common thing in grief where it's people will blame themselves or they'll blame the widow or they'll blame the doctor or they'll because basically the worst possible answer you can give a human being as to why something bad happened is, oh, there's no reason. It's just random. We fucking hate that shit. It makes us so angry like we do not as a species we do not like the idea of randomness we desire to be so fully in control of our environment that like you said earlier about conspiracy theories nick we just want 
somebody to be in control, even if it's an asshole. That's why we keep having dictators over and over again. And yeah, that's that's basically why is uh, it's this it's the same thing with that happened with 9-11. It's the same thing that happened with Sandy Hook. It's this it it all it's all the same thing is we saw something so horrific that a certain percentage of us could not cope with it and coped with it even worse when we were told that it was kind of essentially random or it, it, like even like Sandy Hook and 9-11, those weren't just ran, those weren't disasters caused by human error. They were caused by human malice, but it's still random. There's no actual there's not really much reason behind it or when like cases of 9-11, when there were political reasons behind it, they weren't very well understood by most people. So basically, we did another thing that is incre- that is very natural for humans to do. We made up a story and told it to ourselves and to each other about why it happened. And a certain percentage of us decided that that story was more comforting than the actual truth that we were being given. That is the simple explanation from my professional standpoint. Uh, putting my believer cap on, even though I really don't want to. Force it on your head. Uh, Staple it, it in place. Fit. Um, why would NASA choose to kill one astronaut in such a spectacular manner? I don't know, man. Maybe the fiscal year was running up and they needed to blow <laughs> a bunch of shit on their budget or else it was going to get cut in the next fiscal year, maybe. Listen, I don't we got to use all this dynamite or they're not going to let us buy more dynamite next year. Maybe. Maybe. That's what my fucking work does whenever they have, whenever they have a surplus is they just throw money at random shit and they're just like, do not tell anyone we had extra money. Do not ever tell anyone we had extra money. It's like, yeah, no, I understand. If we have extra money for even one day, they'll take away all of it forever. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm really trying to think about why they would do this. And, well, and the, I got to let you know, full disclosure, I don't have an answer to that question. Yeah, I'm I, asking it because I drove myself crazy trying to put my my put put on Martin Black shoes and think about what what did he actually think was the motivation here. The only explanation that I can come up with that might be at all reasonable is that Onizuka was not the only problem with that mission, that maybe every other astronaut on the Challenger was also a problem. And maybe, I don't know, maybe the flat earthers are right. Maybe there's nothing up there. Maybe it's just the firmament and it stops. And so sometimes they blow up shuttles so they can keep pretending. The flat earthers are not correct. I know they're not correct. I know they aren't correct. If the earth was flat, cats would have pushed everything off of it by now. We uh, know this. This is science. Um, <laughs> I'm, scientific I'm, I'm moving fact. On. No, we're moving on from that lunacy. Fine. Guess I'm done talking. Rory, Rory's what do you turn. think? Um, so the follow-up question we'll start there like jay did what is it about these tragedies and i think it's uh i think jay hit the nail on the head we can't really wrap our mind around this tragedy that we saw so we see something or hear something that in our fucked up little brains makes a little bit more sense or makes it seem i don't know it, for whatever reason it just gives us something to latch on to and so we latch on to it 
especially with things like the Challenger explosion, because there's and 9-11, they're so sudden, they happen so fast. And ultimately, the answers that we get are unsatisfactory. Even to those that don't believe in conspiracy theories, I would say that the answers that we got on 9-11 were manipulative and unsatisfactory. I, I mean, I would agree as far as I remember the incident, because I, right. I was a kid. Yeah, same. So I and I think that's kind of like I, I, I honest to God, I think that's just the biggest thing. It's like we don't know enough. There's not enough transparency in these things. So they let these theories get out of control. And that I I think that transparency to these kind of events while they might, while the government and the and NASA might think that they're being transparent by giving the information, they know and w- the fact that there's more information that's always uncovered leads people to then believe that there's more information that has yet to be uncovered and more information that has yet to be uncovered, and so therefore these things extrapolate and get out kind of out of hand, you know. I think you're actually hitting on one of the most dangerous things about conspiracy thought is that that whole idea of that what's the next stage what's the next connection what that inevitably leads to is one conspiracy theory ends up networking to another and yeah. then another and then before you know it your whole world is built your whole worldview is built of different conspiracy theories that you have frankenstein together into this deeply unhealthy worldview well it's like the documentary that we watched that youtube documentary we watched about flat earthers and how it, it turned into qanon uh, qanon thought and like they all ended up meshing together that's just kind of what seems to happen and it's a lot of it stems from and i think stems from a lack of transparency in the initial events because as and it's not even in, it's not even necessarily intentional it's because more the more information is always uncovered about these things as it goes on people will sit there and go well you knew that the whole time what else aren't you telling us even though they didn't know that at the time how could they possibly have i mean when it took a while on on 9-11 for the government to understand that this was an attack. Even though, you know, quote unquote, we knew about this, we, we knew that this was happening ahead of time. And was there evidence that suggested that we knew that Osama bin Laden was threatening us? Yes, but he threatened us all the time. Yeah, we didn't think he was, that's the thing that people don't realize. It's like, oh, the White House had four North. We didn't think he was going to fucking do anything. Right, because he'd been doing this since the 90s. Yeah. He'd been threatening us since the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Well, playing Pokemon on a Game Boy emulator in a cave. Legitimately, they found Pokemon and a bunch of other games in his uh, on his laptop. Fucking asshole. It's just the image of Osama bin Laden, like, chasing down a Squirtle. He also <laughs> tried to hide behind one of his wives when the SEAL Team 6 came for him. Yeah, well, he's dead. Yep, he's super dead. And good. Um, as for uh, me sticking on this tinfoil cap, just grinding it into my head, um, why would they kill him in such a spectacular way? Well, they had to make it look like an accident because otherwise it was an assassination. Sure. And they already knew that he was going to go up in a rocket and rockets are bound to explode. Yeah, true. I, that, is a, that is an angle I hadn't considered. He was already going to be sitting inside this, 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 this essentially bomb that was going to go into space. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, why not just make it explode? 
Why not just you know give what? him anaphylactic that is shock? As, that is as good of an answer as Martin Black ever gave us. It, uh, the honest to God, it was the simplest thing I could think of. Like, he was going to do it anyway. We want to kill him because he's being an asshole. Well, fuck it. Let's just make his shit explode. And screw all, screw the rest of the crew and that poor school teacher who died along with him. The rest of the crew were, get, were obviously in on it with him because if they weren't, why were they on a crew with him? It, why were they working with him Mr. Black. if they didn't also believe in his bullshit? M- Mr. Black, Mr. Black, two things. One, they were assigned to that mission because it's, uh, well, it's NASA, sir. Um, they just sort of tell you where to go. You can um, get reassigned. Sir, sir, Mr. Black, Mr. Black, Mr. Black. Yes. How much did that shuttle cost? Millions. Billions. 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 So they spent billions on uh, killing one man when they could have just injected him with something that would have made it look like he died of anaphylactic shock? Yes, but then that would have been more suspicious. That would have been more suspicious than them blowing up a whole-ass rocket that the whole world was looking at. If they had just killed him and made it look like anaphylactic shock, do you know how many conspiracy theories would have stemmed from that? Mr. Black! I'm trying to avoid the conspiracy theories here and just speak the truth. Mr. Black, your day pass from the Institute has expired. I didn't even have a day pass. Oh, so you escaped. Well, I'm getting the net. So just so you guys know, uh, adjusting for inflation, factoring in the cost of the shuttle, the, the fees paid to the families, and the cost of the investigation, all of that, the Challenger disaster cost us $3.2 billion. So it would have been cheaper to beat him to death with a wrench in an alley and pay an actor to pretend to be him for the rest of his, rest of their life? Is that what I'm hearing? Correct. Still, it, it's still less money than what the Pentagon has uh, lost. That's true. That's pocket change. And, <gasps> and also, um, billions of dollars to, uh, to kill this guy, uh, but also, like, uh, what were they going to do with the rocket otherwise? Send it into space to advance humanity's scientific understanding of our universe. I know, I know you have truly embodied the spirit of Martin Black because you said that. And I experienced such profound confusion and rage that my brain whited out for a second. I'm just, I'm just replaying that mental image of Buzz Aldrin punching that conspiracy theorist without breaking stride. That's the only thing getting me through that section. Yeah. Uh, so you guys, I, I did come up with my own kooky theory. I'm dying to hear this. Okay. So Onizuka was going to blow the lid on UFOs, right? Yes, he was. Okay. Well, there's also a lot of allegations that we've come across that the U.S. government has been in collusion with the aliens, allowing them to abduct people in exchange for technology. I am with you so far. It stands to reason, then, the aliens would be just as invested as we are in keeping the UFO secret secret. Okay. And where do aliens live? That's right, the sky. So we had to blow them up in the sky so they could see that we cut that loose thread. You couldn't have texted them. Now, they, they, they have a bad data plan. The aliens have a bad data plan. Yeah, they go through Sprint. Why do the aliens go through Sprint, Mr. Black? That's all they could afford. Why, why are the aliens blow, broke? Why are the they aliens broke? They don't have broke? any money. Why don't they have money? Why would they have money? Why would we, why, why, why won't we give them money so they can afford a cell phone plan that's not Sprint so we can text them instead of blowing up the challenger? We can't give them money. That's communism. The only other way to do it would be to put them on a government plan, and then it's documented, and we can't do that. All right, so your solution was to waste $3.2 billion 
kill half a dozen people and traumatize a nation. Well, it was either that or pay for the plan ourselves, and we weren't going to do that. So you'd rather waste $3.2 billion? Again, what were we going to do with the rocket otherwise? Send it into space (laughs) and learn things! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think we can all uh, pull these uh, these tinfoil hats off our heads. I gotta get the drill. I think we have have spun too far. (laughs) This is what you get for making me put the cap on. Look what you made me do! Are you guys Please. ready for the last section? Yes. Yeah. Section 5, Malicious Photoshop. In March of 1960, a curious series of events occurred, which once again dragged NASA's name into the conspiratorial muck, this time with accusations of concealing and doctoring photographic evidence of UFOs. That month, a man named Joseph Perry of Grand Blanc, Michigan, photographed a UFO that he had spotted in the skies while photographing the moon through a homemade telescope. The object was oval-shaped, with a flat bottom, and was clearly floating in the space between Earth and the Moon. It had a soft glow about it, and Perry, who to that point had taken thousands of moon pics, had never seen anything like it. He filed the report to the FBI, and as shown in documentation released via the FOIA process, NASA soon heard of the incident and requested that the FBI do what they could to obtain the photo for further analysis. On request, Perry did relinquish the photo, and while he was assured that it would be returned, it never was. Rather, Perry was told that the photo was now in the proper hands, and that all further inquiries should be directed to the Air Force. And on that, I just couldn't help but think about uh, Indiana Jones. Where is it? It's being seen to by top men. Who? Top men. Top men. And this would be far from the last time NASA was implicated in making UFO evidence disappear. The next claim came from one of NASA's own contractors, a woman named Donna Hare, who testified at Dr. Stephen Greer's 2001 Citizens' Hearings on Disclosure. Hare had previously worked for a NASA-contracted company called Philco, which provided worldwide tracking station networks to NASA for use in its Project Mercury flights. She served the agency for 15 years in this regard, working at NASA's photographic laboratory at the Johnson Space Center. During this time, she won numerous awards from NASA, including the coveted Apollo Achievement Award. However, it was also during this time, she claims, that she found herself working amidst conspirators actively involved in covering up the reality of UFOs. As she claims, she spoke with senior members of NASA's staff who were certain that UFOs were real and that they had been tasked with ensuring that that truth never leaked out of NASA. She also reported that she was once shown a photo of a disc-shaped object flying through space, and that she was further tasked with identifying similar images and airbrushing the anomalous objects out of them. A similar claim was made by former U.S. Air Force operative Carl Wolfe, who claimed to have been working on assignment at Langley Air Force Base in 1965, where he learned that NASA reconnaissance of the moon had found a massive city-sized base of unknown origin on the dark side of our celestial sidekick. The nature of this mystery city, and who lived there, was never revealed to Wolf, save that any images of it were being edited to remove all artificial structures prior to public release. But one would be fair to ask, where is the evidence? Where are the undoctored photos, the original equipment readings, the memos ordering the conspiracy into motion? Well, as the world moved into the digital age, two English teenagers sought to answer those very questions with a bit of good old-fashioned felony computer hacking. You can't get very far in reading about the UFO conspiracy without mention of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 
rumored to be the final resting place for many of the alien cadavers and craft recovered from crash sites. This rumor is so prevalent that in 1975, Senator Barry Goldwater attempted to get to the bottom of it and was summarily rejected as he lacked the clearance to see whatever it is they had hidden inside their secure facilities. The rumor gained new life on October 17, 1993, when NBC ran a story on an unnamed hacker who claimed to have gotten access to the base's computer systems and uncovered a document cataloging the assessment and storage of several pieces of UFOs. The documents were reviewed by the NBC legal team, who found them to be 100% legitimate, though for obvious reasons the hacker behind the act wouldn't allow his name or face to be attached to the story. Oh, if the NBC legal team... Right. Perhaps inspired by this incident, another hacker, a brilliant teenager from Cardiff, Wales, named Matthew Bevan, decided to set his prodigious mind to the task of hacking the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It was there that he claimed to uncover files detailing the construction of a prototype anti-gravity craft designed from the study of UFO wreckage. He soon expanded his search and hacked into NASA's secured systems, where he found more information supporting his earlier find— but he decided to get out while he was ahead and, for the next two years, assumed he had gotten away clean. That changed one day while he was at work. He was summoned to his boss's office where he was confronted by detectives from Scotland Yard's Computer Crimes Unit. They grilled him, asking him what the term Hangar 18 meant to him, this being the supposed location at Wright-Patterson where the UFOs were kept, as well as other questions about UFOs and alien life. Bevan soon went to trial for his crimes, but the case quickly collapsed due to NASA and the U.S. government's refusal to admit what Bevan had seen or to detail any of the supposed damages he had caused. He was set free, and the U.S. government was left with egg on its face, a mistake the government would be desperate not to repeat the next time someone tried to pry into their systems. You know, everyone's always talking about disinformation, and then there's these people who are like, I hacked into NASA, and <laughs> I found secret files that detail what they found in the UFOs and the technology. What if those are fake? They very well could be. I, if I was, if I had unlimited resources and I was told you're in charge of the UFO cover-up, I'd do shit like that. I'd scatter so many false leads out, out into the ether. I'd be leaving fucking manila folders labeled top secret at bus stations. And this is why you're not in charge of those things. <laughs> Thus enters the infamous Gary McKinnon. Like Bevan, he was also a teenager from England. Hacking from the comfort of his girlfriend's aunt's home in Crouch End, London, McKinnon managed to gain access to NASA systems, reportedly an easy feat as many top-level administrators had failed to give themselves passwords. What? Fired immediately. So, uh, uh, all the way jail. All the way jail for you. <laughs> Remote viewing their desktops, he first encountered a file containing a list of non-terrestrial officers, being a list of personnel associated with what, in conspiracy circles, is referred to as the secret space program. He also claimed to have come upon the unaltered images mentioned in Donna Hare's testimony, showing pictures of saucers and other craft buzzing by Earth. The files, he claimed, were too large to transfer, so he began working to take screenshots when NASA discovered what he was up to and abruptly cut the connection before he could gather any actual evidence. Thankfully for McKinnon, it seems that NASA did not have time to figure out from where exactly the hack came. Sadly, McKinnon couldn't leave well enough alone, and when the 9-11 terror attacks occurred and the war in the Middle East began, he began hacking into U.S. government systems to leave messages accusing the government of manufacturing the 9-11 attacks to fuel public support for the war on terror. 
These hacks were backtracked, and in 2002, McKinnon was arrested by the UK National High Tech Crime Unit. Well, initially, things didn't look too dire for the young hacker, with the charges only meriting a maximum six-month prison sentence. Shortly after his arrest, a new extradition treaty was ratified between the U.S. and British governments. Unlike previous agreements, the new treaty allowed the U.S. to extradite British citizens under certain specific circumstances. Controversially, they wouldn't even need to provide contestable evidence, just request the individual be handed over. Thus kicked off a lengthy legal battle with McKinnon's lawyers attempting to fight the extradition. The core contention being around the U.S. government's claim that McKinnon had hacked over 100 sensitive systems and deliberately and maliciously caused extensive damage therein. Meanwhile, McKinnon claimed he had done nothing of the sort, and his hacking had amounted to little more than remote viewing NASA desktops. Appeals came and went with even the European Court of Human Rights hearing the case. And as of the publication of the book in 2010, the fight was seemingly about to end in the government's favor when Prime Minister Cameron approved the extradition. However, in 2002, the Home Secretary, Theresa May, announced that the extradition had been officially blocked due to McKinnon having been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and fears that his human rights would be violated in a U.S. trial. Which is where the story ends, with McKinnon a free man working to rebuild his life after a protracted legal battle. As with most of the conspiracies in this book, the truth of McKinnon's claims will likely forever remain beneath the concealing cloak of half-truths, outright lies, disagreements, and nebulous conspiracy. But then, that's part of the fun and danger of conspiracy theories, isn't it? With little more than a few dangling threads, a fabrication or two, a few unanswered questions, and a couple leaps of maybe logic, we can make mystery of the mundane, make tragedies tantalizing, or suggest a deeper world behind our everyday reality, inside which the real movers and shakers slide through the shadows, unseen, giving shape to the apparent chaos of our world. And who knows, perhaps in due time it will be revealed that there is more truth to some of these theories than most of us would ever suspect. Which brings us to our last discussion question. So our final question is the most basic. Looking over all of this book and the evidence or lack thereof supporting each theory, are there any theories in this book that you believe to be truly plausible? If so, which ones seem most likely to you, and which ones stink of obvious bullshit? So I think the most plausible ones are any are some of these ones that you just went over, the hacking into NASA and them saying that we, you know, Hangar 18 and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is where we're holding the, the, the ships. Uh, and any, any of the ones like that, save for this last one where uh, McKinnon was hacking the... Uh, was it, uh, leaving the 9-11 yeah, messages. leaving the 9-11 messages because there was no information there. He was just being, a, like, a dickhead. Like, really, that that one, I was looking at this, really, dude, what the hell did you think was going to happen? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, but I think any of the ones where it's like, uh, you know, uh, where they where he hacked in and and found information or claimed to have found information and that this is that is plausible to me because one of course they're hiding where the this infra, where these things are if we have them and I think we do I mean just based on Trinity the book Trinity alone says that we if we believe what the what the those two. The, yeah, the two witnesses saw. Then we, they, we, we do. That being that being said, I, m most most of these consp conspiracy theories, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, I don't know, uh, stink of bullshit to me. 
like obviously we landed on the moon you know though something that when they were talking about the face of mars like some i guess some of that sure maybe could be you know i've got you know that's especially the idea of like uh it having been like some of this having been like formerly like roads or whatever that have all eroded away and that's what left some of this behind like Okay, I could buy that. Sure. I mean, I could totally buy some point in the distant history before humanity was really even a thing. There was another intelligent race on that planet that wiped themselves out. Yeah, no. Like, there's no—I don't see a great reason to disbelieve that offhand. No, and, you know, we—I agree. I don't see any reason why that that, that couldn't be, uh, you know, because we don't—we don't, as a species, fully understand— why life evolves so it's not that hard to imagine that life may have evolved in separate circumstances than ours we only understand that life can evolve this way because it's the only one that we know and it's ours you know you also got to consider that there is great disagreement about what happened on this planet 10 or twenty thousand years ago let alone 200,000 years ago in an alien world we've only seen through probes and rovers. And this world was not always, Earth was not always ripe for life. It was the only reason that we exist on this planet, the only reason that we under, that we understand is because of all of the different things that have happened to our planet, including like other, like other terrible things. Because at one point, like at one point, our planet had no oxygen. It wasn't until the evolution of plants that oxygen was then fed to the atmosphere that then evolved that, or let uh, let us steadily evolve. So even going further back than that, there is some conjecture that the moon might actually be a piece of another planet that we crashed into. Yep. Yep. Because uh, our moon doesn't make any sense. It's way too big and it's way too dense. Yep. <clears throat> I th- I think I think there's I think that there is some conspiracy theories here that that seem plausible. Uh, just because, like, it's just trying to think, I guess, outside of our box of Earth and let, almost let your imagination go a little bit. And it's not that it's not that hard to imagine that something like that could happen. Now, that being said, I, I like I said, I think thing, conspiracy theories like we didn't land on the moon. The Challenger explosion was was, uh, you know, was a, essentially a murder, a, a billion dollar murder. Those that's they're bullshit just plain yeah. and simple they're bullshit they don't hold up to any scrutiny at all and if i like i just said if i let my imagination wander on those what i come to is just a bunch of sadness and hate and i that no no i mean i get it um so i like rory the ones i'm most likely to believe are we've got some ships and a couple of bodies stashed somewhere out in the southwest desert and occasionally our our powers that be look at them and go shit i don't even know what we're gonna fucking do with this fuck uh throw the tarp over it (laughs) throw more tarps over it (laughs) okay now shut the door now we're all gonna go home and we're not going to come back here. Put a tarp <laughs> over the door. Go home. Put a tarp over yourself. Yep. And then just sit there for 25 years. And go, ah, in a long, unbroken breath. Um, yeah, I. Um, but the other one that I could maybe see happening is, um, I can't remember any of the names, the guy that was the archivist 
uh, who was working for NASA, who claims that James. he's- James. James. We saw, don't have a last name, just James, yeah, like Cher. He allegedly saw some footage of what he believes were aliens being experimented on, and he was told that it's like, oh, no, those aren't, those aren't aliens. Those are uh, mental patients and the severely disabled that have been bought from uh, psychiatric hospitals and care homes secretly over the years to be experimented on. And he was like, I don't think that could possibly happen. I think those are aliens. Nope, I think he had it half right. I think the government was absolutely just experimenting on the mentally ill. I mean... Why wouldn't they? Unfortunately, I, I, I could see some dark elements of our government doing something like that. Yeah. Uh, you want to know why I think that? Because they already fucking did. Repeatedly. Like, they've done that. They've, yep, like the Tuskegee experiments. The Tuskegee, yeah, the Tuskegee experiments... Um, the, the Tuskegee experiments, the stuff about MKUltra that we know happened and just there, we, we know that they have done shit like this. And I'm sorry if anyone listening to the podcast is under the impression that the American government gives a single shit about disabled people or sees them as anything other than objects. What fucking world are you living in? Like of like. Of goddamn course. Like, I, I actually, on some level, have no trouble believing that certain intelligence agencies with black budgets were allowed to just go buy dozens of severely mentally disabled people, lock them in a basement, and conduct terrific experiments on them. If if fucking Mad Dog Maddox came, Maddox came out tomorrow and was like, yep, we did that, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That that confirms my pre-existing worldview. Okay, I will point out, uh, if you accept something offhand because it confirms your pre-existing worldview, you should assess it more deeply. Yes, I was making a joke. But that said, I do understand where you're coming from. I, I mean, I uh, very similar to you guys, I think it's quite possible there is some form of a UFO cover-up. In fact, I think that's one of the more likely ones. Uh, I could see there being some truth to the the face on Mars being something. It could also be Parandolia. I fully accept that's possible. Uh, there were a couple others in here which they struck me as as being plausible, but I didn't include them in the summary because there was no conspiracy around them. Uh, for example, the reading I I read for, well, the reading I read right from the beginning of the episode that was a segment from a chapter called Mo uh, the Monsters of NASA. And it's largely just about sightings of these weird winged men that are sometimes seen around NASA facilities. But there's no conspiracy. It's just, hey, sometimes we see that. And I think I would totally buy that if there is weird extra dimensional entities or monsters out there that they'd have an interest in NASA, especially if they're, they're extraterrestrial. Mothman, what are you doing around the space, pe the space people? He might be looking for a hangar to sleep in. The other thing I was thinking about is, okay, well, we've often talked about how paranormal phenomena is attracted to liminal places. Well, NASA centers, you have people coming all the time. It is a place that represents, like, the greatest, one of the greatest unknowns our species has, that final frontier we're all trying to push. I could see that being kind of a, a, a focus for paranormal activity. Um, so I, I could buy all that, but... I think it's pretty obvious from my summary which ones I don't buy. Yeah. yeah. One thing about Terrence McKenna, though, that, that really makes me doubt him severely, besides the profoundly stupid decision he made to, to go back and hack them again just to taunt them, 
is okay so i would buy hey that we found ufo images before they were doctored that nasa doesn't want that to get out because the whole government doesn't want that to get out sure i can buy that but the whole i only briefly touched on the summary but the whole idea of non-terrestrial officers and a secret space program that's where you lose me and that's because the whole idea behind a secret space program is that the shuttles, the astronauts, everything that we know about our space program is a very expensive ruse that is put up to make everyone think that we're at a certain point of development in terms of space exploration when we're actually far past that. We have whole galactic fleets. We have we have uh, X-wing fighters out there fighting uh, to defend Earth. And that's that's how far the secret space program theory goes. So the fact that his... Uh, the things he found while hacking included elements of that makes me doubt his entire story. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. And also, the uh, and also, I gotta say, the fact that uh, he later hacked the U.S. government, leaving inflammatory messages on their servers, and then later during trial, the government mentioned that he had hacked into and disrupted over a hun- you know, hundreds of sensitive systems and caused malicious damage. Well. I, I could almost believe that they were telling the truth there, that he lied about what he was actually doing to yeah. try to make himself sound better. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because if he, uh, you know, if he was able to and willing to go and uh, and troll the U.S. government by leaving inflammatory messages, I could absolutely believe he'd be willing to go in there and delete a couple archive directories and scramble some data. It's, yeah. also, it's also entirely possible that a lot of the damage he did was done by accident and he was making up these stories to not make himself look like an idiot because he didn't know how to admit that T.A. didn't mean to delete all that important shit and B. had no idea how to get it back. Yeah. But yeah, no, so I, I think that's that's where I'm at. I mean, on this episode as a whole, kind of a theme we've been returning to is uh, that old phrase, you know, hold your beliefs lightly and that I think that... Uh, as people who are invested in the paranormal sphere, who are reading all these books, it's very important for us and for our listeners at home to constantly be evaluating our beliefs surrounding this because I, I could see it being very easily, any one of us very easily could end up sucked into a conspiracy theory as ridiculous as the moon landing is faked. Oh, if absolutely. If presented it with the right information at the right time. And I, it's not something that you have to be an idiot to fall for. It's not something you have to be, a gu- you don't have to be gullible to fall for. I think falling for conspiracy theories is just something mankind is pretty good at doing. Yeah, plenty of highly intelligent and educated people have fallen for conspiracy theories. Yep. Sometimes I some sometimes that whole they secretly have the cure for cancer and they're just withholding it. That gets me sometimes just yeah. because I'm so embittered about the healthcare system that I actually have to like go remind myself how cancer works to remind myself why that's bullshit. Yeah. And when here's the thing, though, that this troubling thing is that truly I do believe that not all conspiracy theories are bullshit and that there is probably Correct. nuggets of truth out there because we know there are. I mean, MK Ultra was a conspiracy theory before it became a conspiracy fact. True. So I believe that some of these there is some some nugget in there, some dark secret that they don't want to get out. Uh, it's just a matter of not getting confused by the noise that surrounds that nugget. Yep, it's uh, being able to take in the information and critically think about it, utilizing the facts that you have, and then pushing forward based on that information. I mean, there's there's possibilities that things that we've talked about today would come to light and say that they are in fact true and that we have proven it and we would be, you know, 
eating our words, and that's fine. Yeah. That's completely fine yeah. with me. If I get proven wrong on anything I say on that show, that's great. Yeah. That means it's a chance for me to learn and grow. I mean, any listeners who've been listening to us for long enough will probably have heard all of us change our opinions on certain things. Absolutely. And that is going to keep happening. That should keep happening. Yep. Almost yeah. like we're human beings and are therefore inherently non-static and are constantly growing and learning and evolving. This is a normal thing. You're a mm. human being? <sighs> Against my will. I've been lied to. What? Against my will. I'm not any happier about it than you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So are we, are we feeling good about that last question? Yeah. I am. All right. I think we can close the book on the NASA conspiracies by Nick Redfern. Yeah. Fun book. Just hear a soft thunk as I hurl it into a wood chipper. Don't do that. It's a perfectly fine book. People okay. should go out and read it. Yeah. I, 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 here's the thing is I genuinely came into this book expecting it to uh, argue that the moon landing was faked. I expected it to be fully on board with every conspiracy theory, but it, it wasn't. Nick Redfern was pretty nuanced on his take on each of them, and he did a pretty good job of tracking them down to each theory down to its original source and was pretty consistent about calling out that source if uh, their claims were wacky. Yeah. No, if you're interested in learning more about the NASA conspiracies, I would recommend this book. Yeah. All right. Ready for the About the Author? Yes. Let's do it. Nick Redfern was born in 1964 and is a British author, ufologist, and cryptozoologist. He was educated at the Pell Sale Comprehensive School in Pell Sale. He began his writing career in the 1980s working for Zero Magazine, a British-based publication devoted to music, fashion, and entertainment. He is now a full-time author, lecturer, and journalist writing about anomalous phenomenon, including Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, aliens, and government conspiracies. In this, he has worked as an advocate for UFO disclosure and through the FOIA and other similar programs, has successfully uncovered thousands of pages of previously classified UFO files from the Royal Air Force, Air Ministry, and Ministry of Defense. His work regularly appears in magazines such as the UFO Magazine, Fate, Fortean Times, and Paranormal Magazine. He has written a massive number, a little north of 50, other books, including, but not limited to, The FBI Files, Cosmic Crashes, A Covert Agenda, The British Government's UFO, Top Secrets Exposed, Shapeshifters, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, Monsters of the Deep, Immortality of the Gods, Men in Black, Weapons of the Gods. He is also a mainstay on the paranormal lecture circuit, both in England and around the world, and he has appeared on a huge number of paranormal television shows and documentaries, including but not limited to Ancient Aliens, Paranormal Declassified, The Unexplained, I Want to Believe, In Search of Monsters, Roswell 70 Years Later, Modern Monsters, Hangar One, Monster Quest, and a unbelievable number of podcasts. He maintains a popular blog at nickredford40.blogspot.com, where he publishes articles concerning anomalous phenomenon, conspiracies, and his upcoming books and appearances. And that's what we got. All right. So, are we ready to go into housekeeping? Housekeeping! All right. So, if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform that you are listening to us on and if it's apple or spotify please leave us a review because it actually does help us five stars preferred but not required and if you want to reach out to us give us a book suggestion or you want to uh, yell and scream at us for something that we said that was just completely vile and inappropriate or 
I don't know, something nice. You can do that, noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com or on social media at noctivigantpod. And I am at Roy Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then, of course, we have a plethora of other social media, including an Instagram, noctivigant underscore podcast. We have a Reddit account, Noctivigant Podcast. A Tumblr account, Noctivigant Podcast. It's mostly memes. And I think that that, oh, and I've never actually mentioned it on the show, uh, but I put it in the show notes, but we have a Discord and you should join and that way we can, you know, interact with you guys directly because we're all on there. So uh, we can talk to you guys and have book discussions or just weird other discussions. So go ahead and join that. The link will be in the show notes, but I think that is it. So what is up next? Up next, Jay is going to be leading us to Alaska once again. Uh, We're going to be reading Abandoned, The History and Horror of Port Chatham, Alaska by Larry Baxter. Uh, So this is a really interesting story. It is an Alaskan town that was supposedly evacuated and abandoned due to Bigfoot activity. Yep. Interesting. So we are returning to the foot. I'm so fucking excited. This is this book feels like nothing we've ever done before. Like this this feels like something legitimately kind of new. I'm so into it. Yeah, no, it is definitely uh, something different. Yeah, and the whole I I love the whole idea of I I don't know mass encounters between like between a human civilization and the anomalous. Like I want to see more situations like where oh this town was abandoned. Why the Fey kicked us out? The Fey kicked you out? Yep, just came in and kicked us right out of our houses. <laughs> Imagine if it's just like nobody lives in Detroit anymore. It got completely taken over by werewolves. That'd well, be that would be terrifying. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just standing there if it's like, I'm just trying to go to an alumni event at WSU and there's just these fucking werewolves just growling at me. I'm just like, for God's sakes, just please, I am begging you. Don't leave the house without your silver sword. I'm not going to hurt them. They're an endangered species. (laughs) Okay, I think that's it. (laughs) All right, well then, uh, Nick, lead us out of here. All right, good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe on those midnight roads. Don't get lost. That's correct. Don't get lost and follow the signposts. Follow the signposts.
what if the reason they blew up the challenger like that is because onizuka was the alien 